Think of people in togas. Think of chariots. Think of marble pillars. Think of orators. Think of epic poems. Think of the academies of philosophy. Think of the agora, the Acropolis. Think of the Aegean Sea. Now, think of patriots in tricornered hats. Why, you may ask. The reason is that they are very much related. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. If you ask the average person what form of government is the United States system based on, most people will reply, the British Parliament. To a significant degree, this is true. Both governments have a two-house system that pass bills. They use the same terms for many things, such as Speaker of the House, Sergeant at Arms, and today the term House Whip. But surprisingly to many people, the Founding Fathers were also influenced by the ancient Greeks and Romans. I am very happy to welcome to Watching America Tom Ricks, or if you prefer, Thomas Ricks. He has written many books, including Making the Core, Fiasco, the American Military Adventure in Iraq. Another written work was The Gamble, General David Petraeus and the American Military Adventure in Iraq. He also wrote The Generals, an American military command from World War II to today. Along the way, he also wrote a novel called The Soldier's Duty in 2001. But his latest venture is a book which is entitled First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. I should say that uh, Thomas, Tom Ricks, was actually um, uh, a journalist from the get-go, it seems, with aspirations, at least in that direction. He's the recipient of two Pulitzer Prizes. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. He has had uh, activities in Somalia, Haiti, Korea, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, Macedonia, Kuwait, Turkey, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And when it comes to Afghanistan, incidentally, I should also point out that not only growing up in New York, he also lived in Afghanistan as a youth for some time. Why don't we begin there, if that's all right with you? Um, you made your way to Yale and, and graduated and, and were a, a Pentagon correspondent. But to grow up in well, Afghanistan is quite exceptional. What brought that about? I, I loved Afghanistan. We were there as a family from 1969 to 1971. My father was a professor at Columbia University and went and taught for two years at Kabul University mm. and actually loved it too. My father is an unusual uh, Ivy League professor. He grew up poor in rural Wyoming. Uh, and found Afghanistan to be astonishingly similar to Wyoming. Well, are they both big sky country? Yes. Uh, Kabul is dominated by a mountain range about 10 miles to the west uh, that's about 12,000 feet high, and where he grew up in Jackson Hole is dominated by the Tetons. Again, I think about 12,000 to 14,000 feet high just to the west. Yes. Well, your latest work is obviously an examination of the foundation of this country because you're looking at the founders and what we would have formerly called a classical um, uh, awareness, if you will, a classical education. Now, we find that today, um, in recent decades, there's been more of an academic movement, certainly, to, if you will, um, expunge or certainly reduce the amount of Western studies. And yet the classical learning um, that took place, certainly in the 18th century, involved young people, you know, usually around the age of 10, if they were going to go to um, fortunate schools where they would learn Greek and Latin. And so candidates of learning would learn about Virgil and Justinian thought and Tacitus historically and uh, Lucretius and various other persons, including our founding fathers. If you just look at schools like William and Mary, 
um, where we have had, I think, four presidents produced um, for their education. George Washington, where he got his uh, uh, license for surveying and what have you, but certainly Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, John Tyler. These are people who were quite schooled in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, we seem to have drifted away from that, and that alerted you to writing the book. What was the genesis of the book? In November 2016, right after the presidential election, that gray Wednesday morning, I woke up and I thought, this country just elected Donald Trump president. I don't understand what happened. I don't understand the conception of the country that would lead to Donald Trump being elected. And I've been taught, when you don't understand a situation, go back to first principles, to fundamentals and take it apart that way. And so I went down to my library and I took down Aristotle's politics. And I read it through in the framework of Donald Trump just being elected. And I was struck, for example, it said that oligarchy is the least stable form of government between democracy, uh, oligarchy, and monarchy. And I thought, well, we've kind of just elected an oligarch. Uh, that is oligarchical rule being ruled by the rich, by a small group of wealthy people. Uh, and that led me to read more Aristotle and to go to other Greek history and philosophy and then into Roman history. And then it became clear to me that I was on the trail of the revolutionary generation in American politics, the people who made the, the war for independence. These people, it became clear, were steeped in the classical world and really got their political vocabulary from it. When they sat down to face the difficult task of making a revolution and then designing a country, they didn't have a lot of examples of what the country, the kind of country they wanted to have. There weren't many republics out there in history, and of them, there weren't many that uh, were larger than a city-state or that lasted very long. And so they go back and they look to Roman and Greek history for examples. How can we design a big, sustainable republic? And they had this common vocabulary, especially about the Roman Republic, the decline of the Roman Republic. To them, the decline of the Roman Republic was the central narrative of, of world history. And it was also a big warning to them. The fall of the Republic had the urgency to them of front-page news. What caused it, they said? Well, it was ultimately taken over by a general, so we have to be careful of that. And what led to that takeover? Well, they said two big problems. Corruption, that is money and luxury, and factionalism, that is partisanship and political divides. And so those became to them the two things to really worry about as they began a new country. Let's avoid corruption and let's avoid factionalism. And this led to problems for them, partly because I think they didn't quite understand the Roman history. And they came into American life kind of misapplying some of those lessons. I can respectfully understand the election of certainly Donald Trump heightening the consideration of an oligarchy, perhaps. Um, but prior to that, we have also had wealthy people uh, on the opposite side, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, uh, Nancy Pelosi, we're told, is worth $100 million. Had the thought occurred to you that that might be happening in U.S. politics prior to Trump's election? Yes, it had. I think uh, for many years we've been drifting towards an oligarchy. But I think the distinction I'd make is that Donald Trump was the first person elected simply because he acted wealthy. I'm not even sure how wealthy he is. He actually may have a negative net worth for all we know at this point. But uh, he was elected because he was a rich man, and he acted like a rich man who would tell it like it is, and he was uncorruptible. Now, this we know is a facade. Uh, I, I think he's a d deeply corrupted individual, but uh, Americans took him for somebody who would lead the country in a different direction. Now, when you when you look at the mindset of people like George Washington, uh, who was at one time referred to uh, in reference to the, the Roman general, um, Senatus, who basically gave up his position of power and returned to farming. And so when George Washington did the same thing, um, he was held rightfully in high regard. This is a person who's not trying to, you know, strangle the last days out of any position of, of, of power. 
Was it a conscious thing, do you think, on the part of George Washington to to fulfill that role with his awareness of Roman history? Or do you think it was just a happenstance that you could draw a correlation that George Washington happened to do a noble thing in the same fashion? Oh, I think he was quite conscious, quite aware of the Roman role models, which is interesting because although he was kind of a member of an economic elite, he was not a well-educated man. One of my favorite parts of my book is when John Adams and Timothy Pickering, two members of Washington's uh, administration, have an argument over drinks one night in Philadelphia about whether Washington is actually illiterate. And Pickering says he is, (laughs) and Adams says, no, he's not. I read his wartime letters to Congress. And Pickering says, no, those are written by that young kid, Alexander Hamilton, and they go back and forth. Uh, But... Washington was part of elite society, and elite society took its role models from Roman history. Mm. So he grows up trying to be a Cato, Cato being the uh, Roman politician who embodied prudence, uh, reserve, just thinking, frugality, all the things that a public man should be. And then you're right, later, uh, as a general who voluntarily gives up power immediately upon the end of the war, he is called and lauded as a new Cincinnatus, the Roman legendary figure who uh, went from his plow, led the, led the Roman army into battle, won the war, and then went back to his waiting plow. And then there are two other uh, Roman roles that sort of hover around Washington's life. Uh, during the American Revolution, He has to learn, and it's a difficult process for him, but he does a great job of learning. He has to learn how to fight differently. He goes into the war a pretty conventional officer, very similar to the English generals and Scottish generals he's facing. Yes, because his brother actually served, I think, in the Navy, right, the British Royal Navy? Yes, and at one point, young George Washington wanted to go into the Navy. Washington, young Washington reminds me a lot of the sort of tongue-tied young men you see in the background of Jane Austen novels, mm. which is no accident, I think, because two of uh, Austen's brothers became admirals in the Royal Navy. Yeah, it's very good, yes. But Washington goes on in the war, and he changes. He, he says, I can't fight big battles, not with the troops I have. We have to run around, make them chase us, wear them out, and what I have to do is keep my army alive, and eventually the British will simply tire of it. The British public will say, let's stop fighting this. And so he imitates the great Roman general Fabius, who defeated Hannibal, the Carthaginian invader of Italy, by exactly that kind of elusive method of indirect fighting, of not giving battle, of hiding out. And the the enemy, um, the Carthaginians, or in the modern case, the British, eventually get worn out and go home. Mm -hmm. And then there's one last Roman model out there, Julius Caesar. And it's Washington's greatness that he does not become a Julius Caesar. He does not seize power. And as you say, there are precious few examples in history of successful generals uh, yielding up power and walking away. Mm. Uh, Somebody that hung heavy in the minds of the colonials was indeed Julius Caesar, but also more recently, Oliver Cromwell. just about 125 years earlier, coming out of the English Civil War, yes, um, executing the king, yes, but then um, the Commonwealth very quickly under uh, Cromwell becomes a dictatorship, right. and his son, yes. his incompetent son, inherits power, and the Commonwealth collapses, and the kingdom is restored. So they had these examples in mind of, of things to avoid, but uh, it was a lot harder to know what to do except than what to avoid. And you have across the water the example, um, you know, obviously of Napoleon, uh, you know, so you get you get rid of your latest King Louis. Uh, and then it's like the line from the, uh, the the song by the Who, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss type deal. Where they Ameri- wanted to avoid yeah, yeah, having yeah. a new boss. Um, it, it, well, one of the things I find very exciting about your book, uh, amongst many things, is this uh, awakening, which I hadn't ever considered before, I have to confess, before I read your book, 
that there are many people, in fact, who model themselves uh, with a with a mindset, if you will, a, a backdrop of of the Romans or uh, Athenians later. But uh, for instance, the Boston Tea Party was led in part by a man called Joseph Warren, a patriot, uh, who admired Cicero. And he sees him, you know, takes on kind of that role of an orator, and I'm going to convince these people to set about to toss this tea into Boston Harbor. So it seems that, you know, Jefferson does it. There's, there's this mindset of there are those souls that came before us um, that have led the path, although sometimes unsuccessfully. Yes, and, and uh, they were aware of the flaws. I mean, they were deeply aware that Cicero was um, – a flawed man, quite vain, and but you know, it made I think it easier for them to say, yes, we are flawed too, but we can imitate these great flawed people. Jefferson uh, was not only impacted by Roman concepts, but he was also impacted very much by the Athenian concept. Now, Thomas Paine had written elsewhere. He said, "What Athens has done in miniature, America would do in magnitude." Um, was Jefferson? A subscriber to that? Yes. Uh, Jefferson is such an un- unusual case, even among the four people we're talking about. The others are all very focused on Rome. Jefferson is the more Greek of these first four presidents. Uh, he reads more Greek literature. He's fond of Euripides at a time when the Greek tragedians that we think of great world literature, they weren't really read back then. In fact, the most popular ancient dramatist was Terence, mm. a, a comic Roman playwright uh, nobody reads today. But Jefferson really liked uh, the Greek history. He was fond of Athens at a time when Sparta was seen as the better example. Uh, Samuel Adams told his cousin John Adams, I want Boston to be a modern Sparta. Jefferson also uh, thought of himself as an Epicurean, not a Stoic. The others all kind of tried to be like the Roman Stoics. Uh, Jefferson was fond of Epicurus. He thought uh, the Epicurean way of life, a prudent, just, wise life in which one avoids pain, was the the way to go. In the best sense of the word, um, you could say then if he was an Epicurean that he was a materialist. I mean, certainly we we know that he, you know, uh, took umbrage with certain parts of the New Testament where he cut things out, the, the miraculous facets. So he was very much into the tangible, the wise, the um, discernible by the senses. Is that a fair thing to say? In this world, yes. Uh, he was an empiricist in that way, which is believe the evidence of your senses. You can be fooled with one of your senses or another of your senses, but not all your senses over over a long period of time. One of the things that strikes me uh, as incredibly interesting is even when you get to the wives of some of these great men, for instance, um, there's there's a uh, certainly in general a fondness that is exhibited by the founding fathers for Brutus and Cassius and, and Cicero and what have you. But Abigail Adams would sign letters to her husband, John, uh, as Portia, the wife of Brutus. Mm-hmm. So it's as though they are, in, in effect, you know, living out, I don't want to say a fantasy, but roles very self-consciously of saying, I am this, you are that, even to the point of the marriage bed. The marriage bed and the horse, uh, also important in their lives. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Abigail Adams. I, I, I have a crush on her, um, if you can have a crush on a woman who's been dead for 225 years. Well, historical figures, I think you can. <laughs> she is a fascinating figure. I think she's brilliant. Yes. I think she was just as smart as John Adams and a lot more stable. I think he went as far as he did because of her. And the only time she kind of loses her judgment, uh, he goes over a cliff, which is on the Alien and Sedition Acts during his presidency. Uh, they're both shocked by the criticism of him as president in the newspapers. And with her backing, uh, he starts throwing newspaper editors in, in jail, saying they're factionalist. Being a factionalist is tantamount to treason. Criticizing the president is tantamount to treason. You're all going to jail. And I think it was really the low point of early American history and uh, certainly made him the worst of the first four presidents, and deservedly a one-term president thrown out of office by the vote and 
rather bitter, rather bitter about it. He uh, he did turn over power uh, to the opposition to Thomas Jefferson, but he did so in his cranky way, and he made a bunch of last-minute appointments that made Jefferson's early days as president difficult. And uh, Trump-like, he declined to attend the inauguration of his successor. Instead, got the 4 a.m. coach to Baltimore on the day of the inauguration. By the way, I'd be surprised if Trump attends the inauguration of his peacefully elected successor, Joe Biden. Well, it's still to be seen. Getting back to Abigail, you would say then essentially she was the voice of constraint and restraint in his life. Generally, yes. Um, and, And also, I think she may have effectively acted as his chief of staff, organizing him, focusing him, and moving him forward toward the things that needed to be done. Let's concentrate um, on Jefferson. But before we do, let me remind everyone that I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to be speaking with Thomas, or if you will, Tom Ricks. He is the author of yet another great book, this time First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and the Romans, and how that shaped our country. I will remind the listener and all of us that uh, many of our founding fathers uh, of this nation had a, a classical education, classicism it was called, where they were exposed to at least a, a, a smattering of, of Latin and Greek, but very much uh, and very often far more than that with an appreciation for the cultures uh, historically and the ability to imbue some of those former things of the culture into their very own lives and the envisioning, if you will, of what would become a great nation. Thomas Jefferson, uh, as we've said, admired the Greeks. At the risk of uh, acknowledging that it could be a form, if you will, of playing of thought, if not plagiarism, um, Thomas Jefferson took the idea of the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from John Locke, in a sense, who had life, liberty, and property. And you make a big distinction uh, between the concepts of property versus happiness. I do. I have a lot of problems with Thomas Jefferson, but for that one document, the Declaration of Independence, he is forever a central figure in American history. The Declaration of Independence states the aspirations of this country back then and even now. Uh, The pursuit of happiness and, even more important, the belief that all men are created equal, that everybody stands equal before the law. And when the country meets that standard, it succeeds. When the country falls short of that standard, which it often does, it fails. The reason I make a big thing of taking that phrase from Locke is Locke, with life, liberty, and estate or property, restricts the scope to those of property, which is a relatively small chunk of the population. The pursuit of happiness, by contrast, is something that's available to every citizen. Every person can pursue happiness. And so with that one phrase, he dramatically changes who the country is supposed to be about. The country is not being designed just for the few who have property. This country is being designed for everybody. I saw a very interesting uh, interview uh, that you did on MSNBC and um, the Morning Joe program. And uh, on it was uh, also Annette uh, Gordon-Reed who obviously has written a, you know, a great uh, tome about um, uh, Mr. Jefferson and, and Miss Hemings, uh, and you praised her, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, she was a bit more charitable uh, regarding Thomas Jefferson than you were at the time. Um, you had pointed out, uh, though these things are historically correct, um, that he was a deeply flawed man in many, many ways. And yes, we're all indebted to him for the construction and, and composition of the Declaration of Independence. But you had said that he was a, an unsuccessful governor, a lousy governor of Virginia. And you said that in many ways he was asleep at the wheel during the revolution. I was wanting somebody to ask you to please ex- expand upon that. Uh, I'm not disputing that. I just would like to know how he was asleep at the wheel during the American Revolution. Sure. Uh, he's governor of Virginia, and the British are indicating they're going to come down the coast. They're going to start focusing on the South much more. He doesn't really react to that. Uh, Benedict Arnold, fighting, having turned sides, fighting for the British, uh, makes a landing. Lafayette, with a small force, tries to stop him. And the British make an incursion, and 
Jefferson is at Monticello, his house uh, outside Charlottesville, well west of the capital. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to pay much attention, and the British are charging across, and the British nearly capture him. Bannister Tarleton, a notorious and very adept, if quite cruel, British uh, officer, uh, charges up a hill, uh, up Monticello, and Jefferson, at the very last possible moment, kind of wakes up and pops on his horse and literally rides up Carter Mountain, the mountain behind his house, mm. to escape the British. Uh, rather than try to organize a militia and to, uh, to do whatever you could to raise supplies, he basically just runs away and later makes the excuse that, well, you know, I'm not really uh, trained in military affairs. Well, neither was anyone else, but you're a governor. You're supposed to organize a defense, or at least get supplies and, and money and people to the army. Uh, I have to tell you, Mr. Ricks, you've, you've changed my perception. I go to Charlottesville a lot, and uh, my, all my sons went to the University of Virginia. And so every time I look at Carter uh, Mountain and uh, the bucolic natural setting with the apple orchards there, I'm going to have this mental image of Mr. Jefferson on horseback uh, uh, riding up uh, rather rapidly. Uh, did he have an option, though? I mean, was there anything else he could have done under those circumstances? Yes, prepare, plan, organize, uh, do the things that a governor is supposed to do. Uh, instead, he, he doesn't. I've got to tell you, there's a saying among American historians, the more you know about George Washington, the more you appreciate him. For me, the corollary is the more I know about Thomas Jefferson, the lower my opinion of him sinks. And for me, the greatest problem I have with Jefferson is, yes, they're all flawed men. Yes, three of the four men we're talking about were slaveholders. The problem I have with Jefferson is he has the greatest gap between his words and his actions. When he's in Paris, he goes around and denounces slavery. He says it's a terrible thing, and I I fear for my, my country when justice comes upon us for this. Yet he never does a single thing about it. Washington, at least, goes home after being president and starts reading about abolitionism and how we could get rid of slavery. Uh, Jefferson doesn't really act on his his beliefs. And so this gap between belief and action uh, really bothers me with, with Jefferson. Well, couldn't we make the same charge, uh, though, against Aristotle? And, you know, he, here we have uh, Athenian thought at its best, and yet we do have a slave class, uh, and we certainly have a, sl- a slave class in Rome. Um, so is he that far removed from the if you will, forebearers of, of such actions? I think so, and for this reason. First, he's in a modern society. They have an option. Uh, their abolitionism is in the air. It's being discussed. Yet, of the four men we're talking about, only one ever talks about Spartacus, the Roman slave rebel, and that's John Adams, who didn't own a slave. A second problem I have here is that, yes, Aristotle refers at one point, to the existence of slavery and says it's justified. But it was an offhand remark. It really wasn't a major thing. And that leads to the point that in the ancient world, slavery generally was more benign than modern American chattel slavery. Uh, I say generally because it was quite harsh in some places and uh, in some times. Sparta was quite harsh in its treatment of slaves. Mm -hmm. Generally, though, slavery was quite different. First of all, In the ancient world, slavery was not race-based. Slaves could be any color. In fact, the word slave comes from the Slavs, Mm -hmm. who are considered nowadays to be Caucasian in our race construct. Um, Slaves actually had some rights in the ancient world, in contrast to the United States, where the U.S. Supreme Court uh, rules in the Dred Scott decision that freed blacks, whether freed or, or slaves, have no rights whatsoever that the white world must respect. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, not only did slaves have rights, their offspring, if they were free, could hold office. That didn't happen in America until, until really, uh, except for a brief period uh, after the Civil War, uh, black people really did not hold office widely until the 1960s and 70s in this country. So our system of slavery here was harsher than the ancient world and has been harder to fix and to deal with the consequences of because we had such a harsh system. 
Uh, you also, in regards to your disfavorable view of Thomas Jefferson, have said that he was a kind of hypocrite about the country in that he wanted to have the country explored to the West, and yet he himself never ventured further than going past the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, is that a, another major fault you find? I think it's a minor fault, but it bothers me. I can't quite figure it out. His father traveled all over further western Virginia, and it wasn't that he didn't like to travel. When, he, when Jefferson lived in Europe, he traveled quite extensively. Yet, Did he make it? I, I, let me interject here, if you don't mind. I'm very curious. Um, I, you know, I know he was in Britain. I know he was certainly in Paris. Um, but uh, and particularly, I believe he was in Paris when the when the Constitution was being formed. But um, did he make it to Rome ever or to Athens? No, um, no. He um, but he traveled extensively in southern France, where there were these lovely um, ruins. Yes, uh, in, in Provence, and he made it into sort of the very northwestern corner of Italy. Okay. Uh, and, and also into, into Germany, but he loved seeing the ancient Roman ruins in far southern France. Well, um, you have been told by Annette uh, Gordon-Reed in the MSNBC uh, uh, interview on Morning Joe, she had said in, in a kind of a gentle rebuttal to you, she said, history is not about worshipping people. It's about seeing the particle, excuse me, seeing the practical things people did to move us forward. In your estimation, with that echo from Annette Gordon-Reed, did he sufficiently move us forward, Thomas Jefferson? He did move us forward. The Declaration of Independence is, I think, the single most important document in this nation's history and is simultaneously a great political document and a great work of literature, for which you can, there are very few Mm. Um, things that, that meet both those. Did he move us as far forward as he might have? Had he acted on his beliefs? No, he did not. And here, I would contrast him with his best friend, James Madison. Madison mightily moved the country forward, far more than Jefferson did, and I don't think he's gotten sufficient credit for it. And why is that, do you suppose? Uh, Madison's an odd figure. He's small, maybe five foot one, maybe 110 115 pounds. He does not have a good speaking voice. Um, he's not very social. He suffers bouts of some form of epilepsy. Uh, he is not a particularly memorable writer. I can only think of one phrase of Madison's that resonates widely in American history that many people know, which is his very insightful comment that if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Mm. which leads to his whole purpose in designing government, which is to balance, to deal with the non-angelic uh, nature of human beings. Uh, I think he should get more credit, Madison. Uh, I think he stands right behind George Washington in importance in creating the nation. George Washington wins the American Revolution, which was not inevitable, uh, he begins with no army taking on the world's greatest military power at the time. Uh, and by growing, by changing, uh, in, in ways that most generals are not able to, Washington prevails. So Washington wins the war. But the question is, what are you going to do with this country now you have it? As Franklin famously said, a republic if you can keep it. It's Madison who comes along and says, you know, we've got to have a better design for this country. They have this thing called the Articles of Confederation, a very weak central government, and governors basically off by themselves trying to handle problems, not unlike the way that we have dealt with the virus over the last year. The central government almost dead, dead in the water and governors scrambling around. So Madison comes along and says, this Articles of Confederation isn't working. Madison begins the drumbeat to have a convention to write a constitution, a new outline for the country. Madison is the first person to show up for the convention. He has spent four years researching ancient Greek city-states and Greek history and histories of republics. And out, out of his studies, he's drawn some political theory of how to construct a government that might, a republic that might last, that even as it grows bigger, might work. 
He's at the convention. He keeps the records of the convention. After the convention, he leads, along with Alexander Hamilton, the campaign to ratify because each of the states had to hold its own meeting to, on whether to approve the Constitution. And that's by itself a great accomplishment. Basically, he says, we need a new law of the land, and he helps write it, and he gets it, and he helps get it passed. But then, for one more important act, in the 1790s, the country's in turmoil. You have an emerging political opposition. President Adams hates it, thinks it should be illegal. At one point, Adams gets so mad he just goes home in a sulk and stays home for seven months. Uh, the country really is in difficulty, and Madison comes along and says, you know, this thing about faction being bad, it's not going to go away, guys. We've got to figure out how to deal with it. And he and Jefferson develop the um, sort of first kind of political party in the country to counter the Federalist. And so Madison in the 1790s, I think, plays the role that Washington during, did during the Revolution, which is seeing the strategic problem facing the country and devising a response to it. And Madison and Jefferson are very successful. The political party they design oust Adams at the turn of the, of the century, at 1800, just a decade after they begin their work. And they take over the U.S. government. It's a pretty impressive performance for this little guy mm. who doesn't have much of a speaking voice yes. and is pretty antisocial to begin with. Yes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I am, as I've stated before, thrilled to have Thomas Ricks as my special guest today. His latest book is entitled First Principles. What American founders, what America's founders learned from the Greek and Romans and how that shaped our country. With that in mind, the title, let me ask you the following. We are told, school children are told that the United States uh, governmental system is based on a concept of parliamentary rule. But we're also told that we are based on a republic format. Given that we have three sections of government in the United States, legislative, executive and judicial, how was that arrived at? And it, was there any founding model for that in Rome, or for that matter, in Athens uh, that preceded it? The model they really are coming out of is Polybius, uh, who says there are three different forms of government. Monarchy, which declines into tyranny. Uh, democracy, which degrades into mob rule. And aristocracy, which degrades into oligarchy. He says the best form of government is something that mixes these three different types. And so in this design, the legislative branch is supposed to represent the democratic element. The executive branch is supposed to represent the monarchical element. And the judicial branch is kind of your aristocratical element. They are supposed to mix uh, and balance each other. So it's not a pure democracy. It is a democratic republic that has aspects of aristocracy and monarchy in it, but quite curtailed, much more than some people wanted. Uh, Hamilton, uh, Alexander Hamilton, has enjoyed kind of a big boost in his reputation because of the terrific book by Ron Chernow and then the wonderful opera uh, about him. But Hamilton, in a lot of ways, was just uh, loony. Uh, he went down to the Constitutional Convention, gave an eight-hour speech in which said, what you really need here is a monarchy. The president uh, should serve for life, and so should the U.S. Senate. These were the, and they had these fundamental questions in front of them. How long should people serve? How do we mix? One of the issues on the table of the convention was who should impeach the president? Should it be the Supreme Court, or should it be the uh, Senate? They, they were just figuring things out. One of the, another issue was whether the presidency should be one person or three people. And well, so the, a, so kind of a Trinitarian model for the presidency? Yes, because they looked back to Roman history, and they said, well, sometimes you had two consuls, and sometimes you had tri a triumvirate. And they said, you know, those things didn't work out. Let's not go with two or three people. Let's go with one person in the presidency. But they were kind of making things up. And it's actually one reason it inspires me. If you know this history, if you know they have these open questions, mm. then it's easier to think about reopening the Constitution and changing it. So, as an example, you could have the Supreme Court have 14-year terms or 18-year terms. You could reallocate senators. It would be very difficult politically. How do you, I know it's happened once before, but how do you feel about adding additional members to the Supreme Court? Uh, I think packing the court, as Franklin Roosevelt did, was probably a bad idea, 
But I do think you could get more support for uh, limiting the years of service to 14 okay. or 18 years. So you're not going to have the prospect of some right-wing nut serving for 40 years or 60 years, as we've had uh, some members of the court. Well, I just have to say for my audience, which is mixed, that there's probably somebody out there saying, or a left-wing nut, but and not of any any yeah. division. William um, Douglas, too. Yeah. So forever let, and, and longer than he should have. Yes. Um, one of the things I found very interesting, you just said it invoked the name uh, Plubius, and I do uh, know... Polybius. Polybius, I'm sorry. Uh, and I, I think I do know, I may be mistaken, that both James Madison and Alexander Hamilton signed... If I'm not mistaken, the Federalist, paper, Fred, Federalist Papers by Publius. Is they that correct? signed with Publius, yes. Publius, um, they did. Okay, and yes. so is that a definite recognition then of the influence? It's a definite recognition of the classical influence. Okay. Um, they tended to be Hamilton tended to choose uh, for his um, classical pseudonyms people who had been right at the time but weren't recognized as being right or unfairly treated by their country, which is pretty much the course Hamilton took. Yes. Hamilton becomes very unhappy uh, in the late 1790s. And at one t- point, tells a good friend of his, um, I, don't, I fear there was no place in this country for me. Wow. Which is such a sad thing for yes, a guy who did so much to help create it. Yes, yes, tragic. It really is that he, he could It entertain. is. He, he is a great operatic figure, this nationalist, this exuberant, brilliant, high-energy guy who ultimately is really wrong about a lot of things and also can't keep his, his, his pants on. I think, uh, inarguably, anyone listening to you, uh, Mr. Thomas Ricks, would, would have to say that it's very, very clear that you have a great passion and love for this nation, uh, although not everyone probably in the audience would agree, but no one agrees with everyone all the time anyway. In the writing of this book, what excited you the most? Did you have a moment when you, in your research, had a aha moment that frankly caused you almost to be unable to sleep? Yes, I did, and I'm glad you asked. Uh, what really struck me, the more I studied this, the more I thought about it, was the fundamental resiliency of the constitutional framework of this country, that this country, it was built this country, uh, expecting great political shocks and differences. Uh, as Jefferson said, sometimes bad men will get into power, and that's why they designed it the way they did. Disperse power. So make it very difficult for one person to become a Napoleonic figure. And this, as I said, well, I think was a great shock to Donald Trump coming in. He was not elected king. He was elected president, head of a co-equal branch of government, and that Nancy Pelosi didn't work for him. Uh, didn't have to return her, his calls, uh, that the Supreme Court, to which he was ideologically comfortable and he had appointed members, even that Supreme Court would not necessarily do what he wanted. So Donald Trump comes in and stubs his toes repeatedly on the constitutional framework. Uh, and I think we've really seen the resiliency, especially in the judiciary, when the judges say, no, actually, Mr. President, you're wrong. There, there are no facts there. Uh, you can't do whatever you want. Where Trump has succeeded more is in violating unwritten rules and norms, uh, which the country also has spent 275 years building, say, the norms of how a president should behave. George Washington worked very hard on, as president, uh, to put the flesh on the bones of the skeleton of the Constitution. How should a president greet people? Should a president entertain in his house? Should a president serve several terms, or should he step down after two terms? And Washington made it clear he thought he should step down over two terms and re- recede into the distance. And one great moment in American history is when John Adams is inaugurated and they're all leaving the room. Uh, Adams bows and defers to Washington. And Washington says, no, you're the president, you go first. Mm. Right after giving up the presidency. Uh, just the way that all happens the norms that have been built up. I think one thing we have to look at now is, okay, some things we thought were norms are not norms um, that can be violated easy, easily. So, for example, a living example right in front of us, we have assumed that presidents, once they were defeated, would turn over power to their successor 
in a way that eases the transition. Here you have Donald Trump refusing to concede that he's lost the election and refusing to start the transition. That's a violation of a norm, but not of a law. We may need to write it into law. Well, I, I've, I, you know, I'm, I'm in a very difficult position uh, because I hear it from both sides. I try and stay down the middle uh, with the show, and so, um, and I see that as my responsibility. So, just to to beg the question, providing he lets go by uh, January the twentieth, is he violating anything legally? As I mean, I understand after January the twentieth, if it's is there's no dispute whatsoever about how the election went is the time perhaps when tanks start to appear around the White House. Um, but is he legally bound to uh, acknowledge uh, anything at this point up until January the 20th if, if things are still being disputed? I mean, help me to figure this out. I was born in Britain. so Yeah, he will need to uh, recognize the certifications from states uh, of the results of the election as being... Uh, in the estimation of the states, and it is their constitutional responsibility, uh, they, states run elections, not the federal government. Uh, he needs to recognize the certification, and then the Electoral College will meet. And this is his last gambit to try to get to subvert the electors who are designated to vote for Biden, and either to get them replaced or to get them uh, to vote for him or something. It's a lost cause. But it's a way, I think, of besmirching Biden's victory and making it look, casting doubt on anything, anything there. Uh, it, it's churlish of him, uh, but it's not illegal. It'll become clear over the next several weeks as the procedures unfold. First, the certification by states, and then the meeting of the Electoral College um, that he has lost. And, and at that point, a refusal to concede... Um, it's not, I guess, illegal, but uh, may make him irrelevant to processes that then start rolling forward. So you would say, at the very least, unseemly? Certainly unseemly, yes. Um, so let me ask you regarding people. You've, you've mentioned some disfavor regarding Thomas Jefferson, although I'm quite sure you have much stronger feelings, obviously, about Donald Trump. Who did you wind up admiring? Who did you wind up saying in the pursuit of this book, this person is not perfect, but almost stellar. The more I learned about Washington and the more I learned about Madison, the more I admired them. For very different reasons. Um, Washington is not well-educated, but because, like, I think a a lot of people who are not well-educated, who are intelligent, he becomes very observant. He learns from experience. He studies experience and reflects on it and changes himself in response to that. Even at the age of 43, 44, 45, as a general developing an army, uh, subject to excruciating pressures, facing defeat in late 1776, Washington again and again rises to the moment, keeps his eyes on the prize, subjects himself to great personal insult but recognizes maybe this person has insulted me, but I need him for the future of the army and keeps him on. He contains his volcanic temper and wins the revolution. So I really came to admire for that. Madison, uh, I came to admire more and more simply for his persistent thoughtfulness of the first four uh, presidents in this founding generation. Madison is perhaps the most politically insightful, the most adept politician, uh, without necessarily having what we think of as great political tools, yet really succeeds in leading the redesign of the country that became the Constitution, and then, as I said, ratifying and implementing it. It's noted that the first four chapters of your book all end with the word power. And so I want to ask you, why? I'm glad you noticed that. Nobody's asked about that. And it uh, was almost an accident. I was writing, and I noticed, uh, in, in going through and editing the first four chapters, that sort of power became the discussion at the end of each chapter. You're trying to come to a conclusion about what I've just said and what it means and where that takes us. And so I did a little fiddling with the writing in a couple of chapters so that each of the first four chapters ends with that word, power. 
and what do you see as the key component of power? In the American context, it is realizing the aspiration of equal justice before the law. Uh, people who exercise power toward that end are great Americans. People who abuse American power uh, to uh, somehow stymie that, that goal uh, are on the wrong side of American history. And finally, before we get ready to say goodbye, um, it's been noted that in the end of your book, you give special mention to a man called Seamus Osborne. I'm just curious as to why. Well, you're right. Uh, I do thank Seamus Osborne, but you're wrong that he's a man. Seamus Osborne is a dog, belongs to a friend of mine. <laughs> okay. And um, when, whenever he came into my, this house, I work up in the attic. I Seamus assumed he was Irish. He must be an Irish setter. Uh, he's He's funny. He's a beagle with a German Shepherd paint job. I don't know how that happens. But whenever he comes into our house, he he runs up the stairs and leaps into my lap and looks at my laptop. And so it's I just sort of shameless, you know, and I feel like he's almost editing my copy as he looks. I take him him hiking in the mountains. My dog is too old and small. Seamus loves to go hiking. So that's really what he's enthusiastic about. But I felt like he's enthusiastic about my book. (laughs) Very good. I think it was a great American called Will Rogers, who said that he never met a man he didn't like. And I would add to that, I've never met a man who liked a dog I didn't like. I want to thank you, Thomas Rick, so much for honoring us with your presence. I'm sure you've uh, ignited a lot of uh, opinions on the part of listeners, both to and fro, which we welcome. And uh, there's one thing which is without question, you love this nation, you love your land, and you want to see it function in the way which is best and operable, uh, causing the least pain for everyone, and that's admirable. So Thomas Ricks, thank you so much. His book is entitled First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and the Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. Sir, it's been a delight. Thank you so very, very much. And I do hope that you'll come back and visit us sometime in the future with your next work on Watching America. It was very enjoyable. Take care and God bless. You've been listening to... Watching America. Our recording engineer has been Victor Bowen. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer, Chuck Dowd is our executive producer, and Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm the series creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.